This is going to be a quick intro today. So season two of Winning Time comes out in August. And if you don't know, the show is based on my book Showtime about the 1980s Lakers. And this season, I'm actually a producer, which doesn't mean a ton. But I do review the episodes. I offer thoughts, suggestions. And now having seen nearly all of season two, I just want to say it's so ridiculously good. It's great. It's exciting. It's inventive. I cannot be more proud or more excited about this one. So hopefully you have something to look forward to. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of 10 books and the host of Two Writers Singing Yang, a podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. And today's guest is Jonathan Salant, the longtime Washington, D.C. congressional reporter for the New York Star-Ledger and New Jersey Advanced Media, who was laid off two weeks ago. And with that, America's 11th largest state has literally zero reporters covering Congress. This is episode number 302. Let's sling some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks. And nobody cares about your stupid TV show. All right, Jonathan. So, uh... First of all, I really, really appreciate you doing this. And I feel like you're doing this in the wake of some really shitty, A, personal news for yourself, and B, shitty news for journalism as an industry, which is you worked for the Star Ledger for many, many moons. You were laid off a couple of weeks ago. And New Jersey no longer has a capital slash congressional reporter. Like, that's it the state of New Jersey, which is insane. And I, I guess in a weird way, I kind of want to ask what bothers you more getting laid off or the fact that this is what it's come to as a whole in journalism. Well, we've been seeing this for a while. I'm a former president of the Regional Reporters Association in Washington. And those are the reporters in D.C. who cover Washington for the hometown newspapers. They're not the ones out with the president yelling at them. They're the ones talking to the local delegation. They're the ones when the the president's going to make an announcement, and I was one of them. You send an email to the press office and say, "Okay, you have state by state numbers." When the when the President Biden signed his infrastructure bill, my lead was President Biden signs an infrastructure bill that has thirteen million dollars for New Jersey. That's the type of stuff we write, and those numbers are shrinking more and more and more and more and more. The thirteen most popular states, frankly, New Jersey's the only one without a Washington correspondent. But there are loads of states that have nobody down here now that used to. Oregon, Nebraska, Mississippi, Alabama, they all had people in Washington watching the delegation and they don't have it anymore. And that's the real problem. I mean, New Jersey, I said, it's the 11th most popular state in the country. And there's nobody watching Cory Booker or Bob Menendez or the delegation. Uh, and there's some very active people and it's a big delegation. How do you explain it as an industry? AKA, why the fuck is this happening? Well, some of it is, is clicks, where you can get a lot more clicks and a lot more attention through this type of, I don't know what, what you call it, but who's watching the Academy Awards tonight? Where can you get that? There's a new restaurant coming. Here's the new Wawa in town, uh, which is better, Wawa or Quick Check. And you get a lot of attention that way. And you don't get as much attention when you're writing about the bills or you're writing about the lawmakers' campaign donations. But a democracy requires an educated electorate. And if you're not telling them what their, their lawmakers are up to, they're not going to know that. How do they make a decision who to vote for if they don't know how they vote on major issues, if they don't know who their funders are? 
if they don't know what they're doing here. I always thought of myself as I'm the person who holds public officials accountable to the public when you're south of the Delaware River, which is the southern border of New Jersey, where right. people are not there. I'm there. I have a desk at the Capitol. The millions of people in New Jersey don't. I can go places they can't go. And my job, the First Amendment gives me that, right, I think, a moral responsibility is to tell the public what their officials are up to. How did you find out that you were losing your position? Well, I was heading down because I had two major interviews, one with the New Jersey Secretary of State and one with Cory Booker for stories that wound up being on page one after I was laid off. And I got a, uh, an email while I was on the Metro, that's the, the subway system in Washington, saying, uh, you have to go to this meeting now. And I said, I can't. I'm on the Metro. And they gave me another time and I came in there and then they had a meeting with me, one administrative editor and the HR department saying, we're laying you off. It's no reflection on you, but we're making a cut and here's your severance and here's your package and here's the things you need to know. And then I finished that and went to two interviews. Man, this is such a journalism lame question, but I'm going to ask, what did that feel like? Well, I'm shocked. I mean, we just, I'm shocked that that happened. Uh, we had been talking just recently. We were told there were no layoffs. And I've been talk making plans for 2023 and 2024. We had you know, presidential elections coming up. I was elected to the Standing Committee of Correspondence, which is the group that runs the press galleries. We basically govern ourselves in Washington. We're the ones who decide whether you have credentials or certain criteria you have to meet to make sure you're a legitimate journalist and not just somebody working for a lobbying firm who wants to go to hearings and cover it but not really cover it, but show up, they get some details, send it to your clients. And you can't do that with a press pass in Washington. Right. And we're the ones who make sure you can't, if you're a company we haven't heard of, we want to know who your donors are to make sure it is legitimate. So I was elected to that, but not only was I elected to that, I got more votes than anybody else in the race, which makes me in line to be the chair next year. In election year, we're going to do the credentialing for the convention. So it's really important thing, something I'm not going to run for if I think I'm going to lose my job. Instead, I wound up winning and beat everybody on that. I was going to say, you started, you're a Long Island guy. You started in Newsday as a uh, sports reporter and intern. And you really have been covering, you started, you were the Capitol Bureau reporter of the Albany Times Union beginning in 1981-84. Capitol Bureau reporter of the Syracuse Herald Journal from 84 to 87. Newhouse regional reporter 87 to 94. Congressional quarterly 94 to 97. AP 97 to 2004, Bloomberg 2004, 2014, and New Jersey Advanced Media, AKA the Star-Ledger, 2014 to present. For a lot of people, nothing would sound more boring than the nitty gritty, gritty nitty of politics. This bill, that campaign reform, this election, um, is this gonna pass, is this not gonna pass? Waiting for a congressman outside his office, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You've covered this stuff for a long time. What is it about it that does it for you? Well, first of all, you missed my first two jobs, which was the uh, Bergen record in 1976 after I graduated from Stony Brook. And then I went to the Miami Herald for three years. And I le left Miami to Albany. And people say, why did you go leave Miami for Albany? <laughs> and I said, because Miami is eight months of a Washington summer. And I was a political science major. I've always been fascinated by politics because you can do things. I grew up in the 60s where we, we saw a movement that helped in the Vietnam War, that helped make George McGovern the Democratic nominee. We saw the civil rights movement. I'm, I'm old enough to remember the civil rights movement. I didn't have it on Long Island, but you read it in the front page of the paper every day. And so you can see how important government is to your life. And somebody needs to track that. You need to tell the public what their officials are doing, from bill introductions to 
campaign contributions, to what they're saying on the campaign trail, to whether they're telling the truth. We're in a post-truth era where people lie all the time. And who's going to tell the public that's a lie? An independent referee, basically. And that's what we are. Well, you said we're in a post-truth era. And I wonder... Do you feel like you experienced a truth era? Like, was there an era when politicians are relatively truthful? The reason I say post-truth is you would do a story and you would catch somebody saying something wrong. Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut, who talked about serving in Vietnam. He really, he was in the service during Vietnam, but never went overseas. Hillary Clinton under fire in Bosnia. It never happened. She exaggerated. And you called them out. Not me personally, but you called them out. And then they didn't do it again. And they said, you're right, I made a mistake. You know, it's, I got caught up, whatever, whatever the reason is. And they apologized, it didn't happen again. Now you call them out and they say the same thing over and over and over and over again. 87,000 IRS agents. There are not 87,000 IRS agents. There might be eventually 87,000 employees because people are retiring at the IRS. They need to answer the phones. They need to process your applications. They need to respond to questions from the beginning. They're not all going to be IRS agents. Wait, so when do you feel like, okay, I'm Hillary Clinton. I say this happened. Well, we found out it didn't happen. Okay, I'm not going to say that again. When do you feel like that changed in this media political world where we caught you doing something? I didn't do that. No, but we have the receipts that you did it. I didn't do that. Fake news. It's garbage. I didn't do it. And I'm not only am I going to not admit I didn't do it, I'm going to double down and insist that you're the one who did it. Like, when did that change? Some of that happened. You know, President Trump was certainly guilty of that. And he was called out and time and time and time again. Glenn Kessler of the uh, Washington Post, a former Newsday reporter, by the way, has a uh, fact-checking site for the Post. And he had gave out what he called permanent Pinocchios because they're just repeating the lie over and over and over again. And that's part of the problem. Plus, you have other media sources. I mean, in, when I was growing up, you had ABC, CBS, and NBC, and that was it. And there were a lot of different sources. And you have cable, which has loads of news channels. There was no CNN. There was no MSNBC. There was no Fox. There was no News Nation. There, there was none of this stuff. And you have all these different sources. This is great New Yorker cartoon with a four-legged creature in front of a computer. And the caption is, on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. When you go on the internet, you have a million sites. You have no idea who they are, who the verification is. And you have access to like the greatest sites in the world, access to the BBC, for God's sakes. You have access to Al Jazeera did some wonderful job of the the Arab Spring that nobody else did. Uh, You have all these credible news sites, but you don't know because you do a search, you do a Google search, and all of a sudden you get all these other sites. And you read it and it doesn't, there's no disclaimer saying, hey, we don't do real journalism. As far as you know, it's just as good as the New York Times. You were a journalist pre-CNN. I've floated this theory many times, but I've never actually asked someone who might know about it, which is, I feel like the birth of CNN and the 24-hour news network and this sudden realization that we have to fill all this time, I feel like has long-term been a real detriment to the dispersion of information especially news in America. Agree or disagree? It's not black and white. CNN could go around the world. WINS in New York wins. You say, you give us 22 minutes, we give you the world. Well, it takes longer than 22 minutes to tell. CNN <laughs> could be all over the place. Hurricanes, you know, riots, world of people. They were there. 
They were in Iraq during the Iraq war. I mean, I'm not. They're there. So that was a really good thing. The question becomes, then you have all these opinion shows and the talking heads. And that, I would argue, you know, a lot of people don't know what they're talking about, but they can yell and scream and say outrageous things and they get on TV. This is totally random. You wrote a story in 2006, March 28, 2006. Headline is, FEC banned some campaign spending on web. And your lead was, the U.S. Federal Election Commission ruled that corporations and unions may not use their treasuries to buy federal campaign advertising on the internet marking the FEC's first move to regulate political spending in cyberspace. At the same time, the commission decided that internet bloggers and other web-based media can say whatever they want without regulation and won't have to report to the government, even if they're paid by candidates or political parties. And in the course of your career, just doing a search for your you know different articles for you through the years, you had a million different stories sort of of that ilk, which is, here's something that happened, here's how it affects you, Here's some quotes from experts. And I wonder, like, as you bounce along day to day, is it hard to fully understand what's going on? Like, here's a new bill. It's about the Internet. You have one day to report this thing or you have a couple hours to report this thing. Does it become dizzying after a while having to not just report it, but kind of understand it? The fringe benefit of being in journalism for four decades is, you know, this stuff. People are talking about Section 230 on the Internet, how to regulate. I covered that debate in 1996 to have no regulation. But I also wrote the story of the people writing the bill got all this money from technology companies. You didn't give them money. They didn't talk to you. They talked to technology companies. So that's what some of that is. You try to limit the how much money is being spent. Because when there's a bill, there's always a, you do a correlation no matter what it is. I've always found, I'm not saying that they're being paid off, but you always find that the people who voted in favor of the industry group that benefits got more money from the industry group than the people who voted against it, you know, whether it's guns or anything else. And you always see there's the story I did for Bloomberg where the Armed Services Committee put in a project that the Pentagon didn't want. And you look at the campaign donations and right before they added that project and overruled the Pentagon, the company building that project gave all this money. And you wrote that story. Is it illegal? No, it's not illegal. Is it unethical? That's your decision to decide. But you should know that and make a decision yourself. And my job is to give you that information so you can make a educated decision. It's funny. I have a nephew. He's 22. And he has no interest in politics because his take is they're all just crooks and egomaniacs anyway. So why should I really give a shit? And obviously, that's a very base level take on Washington. But does he have a point? No. We'll have a point when... When a, when a lawmaker does corruption, it's no longer a page one story. As long as it's on page one, that's a man bites dog story, not a dog bites man story. Mm. And it's still out of the way. Most people on both sides of the aisle are honest politicians. They believe in what they're doing. They believe that what they're doing is right. Some of the folks, they have different reasons for running for office. But most of the people, they're members of Congress. They're a unique group. They have life and death power over the rest of us. And it's a really important position and a position that deserves respect. And the problem is, is that, yeah, if everybody's a crook, then everything goes. And it's not the case. It does seem like something has changed in that. I mean, I think of people like Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Boebert or Matt Gates, where it seems like now being a member of Congress, you can become a celebrity where in the past, 
I would have never heard of a Marjorie Taylor Greene or a Mac Eats. Like they would not have been national figures. They would have been local Congress people representing their districts and blah, 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 blah. And it does seem like the power of celebrity has really poisoned the well a little bit. But again, am I being naive? Well, no, some of the, some folks, it's easy to cover the extremes. I and mean, you named three people out of 535. And I can't calculate it on my phone because I'm talking to you on it. But what's three out of 535? But there are outlets that want that. They want the louded voices. On the left, it's uh, Ocasio-Cortez, Cory Bush. There are people on both sides of the, of the aisle who don't have power. And you know, Matt Gates, by the way, is one of the best people if you believe in decriminalization of marijuana. He's your guy. He's one of the leaders right. in the House of decriminalizing marijuana. I used to cover marijuana as one of my beats. And I talked to you talked to him about that. If you have a loud voice, you're, you're the one that sound bite. And some of the, the members of Congress, they get all this outsized attention. And it's not doesn't represent the mainstream of, of the party. And then the other co- people use it against them. I mean, AOC is, is in more ads by the Republicans than almost anybody but Nancy Pelosi. And she doesn't wield power on Capitol Hill. And likewise, on the other side. Where were you on, uh, on January 6, 2001? I actually was in, where I'm talking to you now, in my family room on my computer because we were quarantining because of the coronavirus and we were really not allowed to go out and cover anything. I covered the insurrection through phone calls, Twitter, and C-SPAN. Wow. And I I have the phone, the the phone, the phone numbers, cell phone numbers of members of my delegation. I called them when they were hunkering down in a secure room and talked to them live about it. I mean, this is a place you've covered for years and years and years and years and years. What was that like for you to sort of behold? Again, you don't expect it. Nobody expects it. You don't expect the Capitol to be to be overrun by people who are trying to who are yelling, kill the vice president of the United States, who are trying to kill the Speaker of the House. You don't expect that to happen. And I don't know anybody expected it to happen. Even now, it's so, it's, it sounds... So Atlantis, that would be happening. That's you know one of these, oh yeah, you know people are always worried that you're a worry what? Yeah, maybe we should get a couple of extra police officers. But this is never going to happen. This is America. We don't do this stuff. And it did happen. And one of the congressmen I used to cover, Andy Kim from New Jersey, and he came, he went that night on his hands and knees in the Capitol and cleaned up the debris left by the insurrectionists and put it in plastic bags. The suit that he wore that day is now at the Smithsonian Institution. And on the two anniversaries since then, 2022 and 2023, I went back to the rotunda with him and did stories, just asking his remembrances of those days and what it was like to be here again. What was that like? Well, it's really meaningful for him. And we couldn't even go to the same spot that he was at because it was too traumatic. He didn't want to go there. He was willing to go to the rotunda for me. But he's talking about it and saying, Wow, you know, I still can't believe this happened. It shows how democracy is fragile. I revere this country. His parents are immigrants. I wanted to make a statement to cleaning up the Capitol because that's the citadel democracy. And we, we had to clean it up and restore it. I have in front of me an article. I'm very wow. It's a photo with a caption. June 26, 1972, Newsday. So New York. Jonathan Salance has been looking forward to graduating at John F. Kennedy High School in Plainview. But after he, his father, and his brother were hit by a car, graduation day looked bleak. 
Then yesterday, Harvey Brickman, school board chairman and principal Barry Gleam brought graduation day to Jonathan in the hospital and the news that he had won a Regent scholarship. What's the story of this one? Well, what happened was it was June. My father's father, my grandfather, who I'd never met, he died before I was born. It was the anniversary of his death. And in the Jewish tradition, you go and say a prayer for him. You need 10 Jews of, of over the age of 13 to have a minion to say the prayer at the synagogue. In June, a lot of people are out of town. So my father, my brother, and I get to go, and that's 30% of a minion. Now you can, in the reform and conservative movement, women are allowed to can be counted in the minion. But in those days, it was only men. So we have three of us. So my father brings us there because now he's got 30% of a minion. He only needs seven more people so he can say the prayer for his father. And on the way back, we're crossing South West Bay Road in Syosset at a green light and a car decided to run the red light and hit the three of us. So we're in the hospital. My brother had just been elected president of the student government. So he's you know, a very popular kid. And I was graduating. And all these people come to the hospital, all these kids. And this is the 70s, right? So they're all with jeans and beads and long hair, men and the women. And the hospital sees like 200 kids in the lobby and calls the cops. There's a riot in the hospital. So Newsday comes over and there's 200 kids sitting quietly in the lobby, going up in shifts of two or three to see us. And uh, they do a piece on, on it. And they quote my mother as saying, I feel like I have 100 sons and daughters. And it was a big deal. It was, it was a, a fun story. And she made quote of the week. Newsday used to have a, a weekly column with highlights and quote of the week. And she was the quote of the week that week. The thing that, that I remember most about it, my brother and I are still alive. And I'm playing softball on a repaired leg at age 69, though I'm now a first baseman. And they warned me that it was going to take my father, even though he was hurt the least, he was taking him the longest time to recover because he was so old. He was 48 at the time. Oh. Okay? Oh. That's a generation. We're talking about just one generation where 48 was considered old. And now I'm 69 and we're trying to keep working. I'm 50. That hurts my head. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, December 28th, 1972. East Islip rally wins. Savills falls short. This is your byline. The first yes. round of the East Islip tourney was a story of two comebacks. One succeeded, but the other did not. In the opener, Saville High School narrowed a 15-point gap to six points before North Babylon pulled away to win 53-42. to East Islip, however, battled back from a seven-point deficit late in the fourth quarter, defeating Glenn in overtime 60-57. to You started as a sports writer. You were a guy covering local sports on Long Island. Why would someone surrender the joy passion excitement sideline passes energy sweat snot tears of sports to cover politics i'm glad you asked me that question what happened is when i was in college i was on the news side of my college paper statesman we were three times a week at stony brook and then for newsday i was one they hired college kids to do high school sports so it was a great part-time job you made a lot of money and helped me buy a car among other things but when I graduated from college, I decided I'd rather cover the Democratic National Convention than the World Series. Why? Because I was always interested in politics. Um, I mean, I like sports also. I'm a big baseball fan. I'm a season ticket holder for the Nationals. I go to the Mets games in my road jersey because it's a road game for my team. But I decided I'd rather cover the Democratic National Convention than the World Series. So I've covered 18 national conventions. And then I didn't cover 2020 because they didn't have really have them. And then in 2019, I talked to the sports editor, you know, Star Ledger, where I'm working, and I say, my desk at the Capitol 
is a 20-minute walk from Nats Park. I can help cover the World Series for you. He says, great idea. I wound up covering the World Series. So now it's 18 to 1. But, you know, I came of age in Watergate. I was, Watergate broke when I was a high school kid, a college kid. And you could see the power of the press and how they could make the world a better place. And in the Jewish religion, there's something called the, the Kun Olam, or literally heal the world. And I saw journalism as a place you could practice the Kun Olam and make the world a better place and hold public officials accountable to the public. And you can't do that if you're covering the Mets, even though it's a lot more fun. Wait, so do you feel like the industry has met your sort of hope or expectation of healing and helping the world? In some places, yes. Look at the Washington Post. They just did these wonderful series on uh, opioids and all the problems. And you want people to respond. And hopefully then government says, wait a second, this is outrageous. We need to do something about it. That series was written by one of the co-writers was a guy named Scott Hyam who is a graduate of Stony Brook University. Uh-huh. So you can write stories like that. And then government responds. I did a big project for my paper on truck safety and all of the issues that all of the technologies that exist out there that could reduce tr- accidents and are not being put into uh, trucks. It's cost, it's lobbying, a lot of reasons why it's not being done. But now you do the story and the Secretary of Transportation, Peter Budget, announces its release of this traffic safety program. And a lot of the stuff I'm writing about isn't in there. But I can now go on the press conference and write and ask that question. I was a Syracuse reporter in Washington after the, ban- the bombing of Pan Am Flight 103. And 35 people at Syracuse University died on that plane. For the next several years in Washington, every time the so Department of Transportation had a press conference. I could go and ask about it. What are you doing about airline security? What is, what's different? What are you looking at? How are you working on this? So you, can, you have this ability to try to pressure government, because government's the one that can make the changes, to make those changes. The piece you uh, alluded to, uh, January 29th, 2021, deaths in truck crashes keep rising as your government ignores safety solutions. And your lead was, whenever she talks about her mother, Renee Langiati keeps tissues close by. Her mother, Susan Bartholomew, was killed on a Florida interstate highway in May 2015 after the car she was riding in swerved to avoid a large truck that was drifting over. Her car collided with another vehicle and wound up wedged underneath the truck trailer. Uh, Langiati's mother was one of 4,095 people who died in crashes involving large trucks in 2015, a number that swelled by 22% over the next four years. But as truck accident deaths continue to increase in the nation and New Jersey, Your federal government has failed to respond, according to a review by New Jersey Advanced Media. Recommendations to improve truck safety by the federal officials who investigate transportation crashes have languished for years as government agencies, lawmakers, and an industry itself oppose proposals designed to reduce fatalities. And I wonder, like, there's so many stories like this, whether it's gun safety, whether it's transportation issues, where something clearly should be regulated to a certain degree. Some industry donates a shitload of money to the people who could make change and change isn't enacted. And I wonder when you report on these issues, issues like this, is it ever hard to suppress your anger at sort of the level of greed overtaking the good of the public? Well, my job is to give the public the information and they're the ones who have to, like, I only get one vote. My wife gets one vote. Uh, my son gets one vote. 
Now, Lynn Downey of the Washington Post famously would not vote in elections. I won't give a campaign donation. I won't do a march. I think that's unethical as a journalist, but I have no problem voting. I think that's a job of a citizen. Then you want people to see what's going on and let them make decisions and let them say, wait a second, this isn't right, or maybe it's not important to them. I can't tell them what to think. I can just give them the facts for them to decide to think. Some of it does hit home. You didn't quote this story, but there was a student from Jersey at a college, my son's age, and she goes into a, a fake Uber after drinking in a bar, and the guy attacks her and kills her. So while I'm celebrating my son's graduation, they're burying their daughter, same age. And that really hit home because it's the same kid. Could have been my kid. And I covered that story. I went to, uh, the parents came down to Washington and the congressman who represents the parents, Congressman Chris Smith, again, Jersey, let me in the room when they were meeting with people. And I'm writing that story. And they did get something through at the end of last year. They get something through at the last minute. Not as, as extensive as they wanted, but they did get a bill through. And those are the type of stories that you write and you can see, wow, uh, you really have an impact. And when you quote a, 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 a congresswoman crying when they're telling the story, that's a very powerful image. You can't get that by going to, a, you can't get to go to a press conference and you're not going to get that when you, do, you interview somebody afterwards. That story made because they let me there and I only could be there because I'm working in Washington and not in New Jersey. Uh, May 9th, 2019. Headline is, their daughter was killed after getting into a car she thought was her Uber. Now this New Jersey couple works to protect others. The lead was Seymour Josephson warned Representative Kathy McMorris Rogers when they met that the tears could flow at any minute. You're getting this raw, the Robbinsville resident told the Republican Congresswoman from Washington State during a meeting Wednesday in Representative Christmas office. By the time they finished, McMorris Rogers had reached for a tissue and Josephson was wiping his, his eyes yet again. Just five weeks earlier, Josephson's 21-year-old daughter, Samantha, a senior at the University of South Carolina, had left a bar and gotten into a car she thought was the Uber she requested. It was a fatal mistake. Police said the driver of the car, who they identified as Nathaniel David Rowland, kidnapped her and stabbed her to death. Are stories like that still hard emotionally to write, or have you been doing this for so long that the emotions don't come into it at all? The emotions do come into it. I said, I mentioned this. This is my, this is, this could be my son. Yeah. Same age, senior in college. You're not supposed to outlive your kid and you develop an affinity for the parents and you develop a sympathy. You know, you're not this, this hard, grizzled, cigar smoking, you know, whiskey chopping reporter. You're a human being. And some of the things that make it real is because it is real because it could be you. It could be your kid. It could be your neighbor's kid. And so you have, I don't say it, it distorts what you're writing. But you, you have feelings. We all have feelings. Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my son Emmett, and we just saw Creed 3. You can't do this ad for RoyalRetros.com. What do you mean? I mean, no one believes in you. You're over the hill. You haven't done an original advertisement in years. It's over. But I want it. Bad. So what are you going to do about it, kid? Royal Retros is the king of sports merchandise. It's throwback gear is sizzlingly dopalicious. And if you go to RoyalRetros.com right now, you can order anything from a Selwyn Dream Arizona Wranglers jersey to a Hartford Whaler snapback hat. It's the king, the king, I say, of old school retro sports merch, motherfuckers. 
You're like Rocky Five, where old brain-dead Rocky gets his ass kicked by Don King and Tommy Morrison. You should hang it up. You're Adrian giving me a pep talk. No, Dad. Really. Royal Retros is great, but you suck. You wrote a piece you sort of alluded to as maybe the most meaningful piece you've written or one of your favorite pieces you wrote. It was in uh, March 25th, 2020. My uncle's heartbreaking burial during coronavirus, saying goodbye from six feet away. And your lead was, no hugs, no shoulders to cry on. Stand six feet apart and use your outside voices. My uncle Sam, my father's brother, passed away over the weekend at age 91. And that set up a conflict between Jewish tradition, which requires this quick burial, and Governor Phil Murphy's lockdown restrictions designed to prevent the spread of the coronavirus. Still, unlike the Beatles, Eleanor Rigby, we were going to make sure that some people came. But first, we had to check that we were following the guidelines for family events. Yes, I did ask the governor's office before gathering at the Floral Park Cemetery in South Brunswick on Tuesday to give Samuel Salant a proper burial. It was small by necessity. His last surviving sibling, my Aunt Eileen, was there. But my 92-year-old mother stayed away, though you wouldn't have been able to keep her away at any other time. This was no time to risk her health. After all, my uncle, who died of a heart disease, wouldn't have known if she was there or not. My other aunt stayed home for the same reason. So it was the nephews and the nieces who came together on a brisk, sunny day in March to say goodbye to our Uncle Sam, born on the 5th of July. Yes, that was his birthday. And my mother used to get quizzical looks when she'd go to the bakery for her annual Independence Day cookout and order a cake for him with the message, Happy birthday, Uncle Sam. I've been to many family funerals before, too many, unfortunately, including for my father, both grandmothers, my other uncles, and my first wife. But this one, for Uncle Sam, was like any other, ever. It's a beautiful, freaking beautiful story. Why is this among the most meaningful pieces you've written? Well, I'll tell, let, me, let me tell you a little bit of background, and then I'll tell you why. My uncle Sam was born on the 5th of July. In fact, the year I was press club president, president of the National Press Club, I took, and he was there. And I talk a little bit about myself. And I said, I am a real life nephew of my Uncle Sam, born on the 5th of July. Uncle Sam, please stand up and take a bow. And he did. And it was right when COVID hit. I was in Jersey for our annual marijuana conference because we started a marijuana publication. And then I was up, since I was up there, I figured I'd go see my uncle in the hospital. We weren't wearing masks yet. Uh, the only masks were, written, were worn by some of the medical personnel, but we didn't know better. And in the hospital, which probably was a hot spot for COVID at the time. I didn't get it, luckily, but I went over there. And then, of course, he passed away the weekend. We have to have a funeral. And you could get small family gatherings who were exempt from the lockdown. This is right when the lockdown said, I think the lockdown said Friday. He died over the weekend. We had something early next week. And one of the things that the paper really encouraged, frankly, was to write outside your comfort zone. You mentioned all those stories about the Federal Election Commission and the Congress. I've been writing them for 40 years. I've never written a story like this before. So I recommend it. Plus, it's a Jersey angle. My grandfather bought a family flat in New Jersey. So I wrote the story. Two weeks later, my aunt, who's in her mid-80s, is found collapsed on the floor of her apartment. She has somebody who checks in on her. They take her to the hospital. She has COVID. She's on a ventilator. She already has emphysema. So the prognosis is really bad. And they want to call the next of kin to basically let them know that, look, we're going to pull the plug. She's going to pass away. Her next of kin was my uncle. He's not answering the phone anymore. So the emergency room doctor does a Google search of Eileen Salant and Samuel Salant and comes up with my story and calls me or sends me an email because the email is in the bottom of the story. And I call her back and I said, yes, it's me. This is my aunt and uncle. You know, I'm in Washington. I don't know the people. I don't have the information, but I hear the cousins who do have the information. 
you know, my sister is a veterinarian, so she has medical background. And another cousin of mine lives right near them in the Bronx, and she's around very close to them. And they got to talk to the doctor. And I still remember the, the, the thing because they said, we want to take her off the ventilator. She's not going to make it. And my sister, again, a veterinarian who's used to animals being put down, says, wait a second. Do you need the ventilator? They said, we don't need it now. So she says, keep her on the ventilator. Because you take her off the ventilator, there's never any hope of her getting better. It's like when you put an animal down, put an animal down, they'll never get better. Right. And so they kept her on the ventilator for a while. And then she started recovering. She wasn't having long COVID. My cousin, the one who took up to take care of her during her recovery, had long COVID. The one who visited my Uncle Sam in the hospital every day. But they're both well, as well as you can be, they're both alive. And you know, my aunt is, is functioning and, and pretty close to where she was. And that's unbelievable. And I don't know that that happens if the emergency room doctor doesn't do a Google search of a story that I wrote that otherwise I'd never written anything like that before in my life. Now, that's amazing. But I feel like there's a buried lead there, which is, did you say you do a marijuana publication? Yes. New Jersey Cannabis Insider. When they were talking about legalizing cannabis for recreational use in New Jersey, uh, they started a publication that does publishes once a week and does a lot of conferences. And I was wrote a Washington column for them. Oh wow! That's how I knew Matt Gates because he's one of the, 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 the leading Republicans supporting federal legalization, or, or more like move the federal ban and leave it to the states of marijuana. Cory Booker from New Jersey, one of the leading advocates of ending the federal ban on, on cannabis. So we wrote, I wrote, you know, that's when you track the legislation, that's when you track the debates, when you track the legislation that's passing or not passing. Uh, that's when you tracked where in the 2020 election with Joe Biden was, he was the only Democrat running who wasn't in support of eliminating the federal ban on cannabis. So I am a, or was till I got laid off, a marijuana columnist. Let me throw this at you. When you are up close and covering government, like, I don't cover government. I'm a sports writer. It's home and write books. And there are moments, especially during elections, especially during presidential elections. When I get to the point where I'm like, this is all coming to an end. This is it. This is a nightmare. This is a Trump. This is going to be our kind. It's over. It's over. It's over. And I start looking to move out of the country and all this awfulness and blah, blah, blah. When you're up close and personal with it, when you're covering government every day, does that prevent you from having the alarmism? that we, the sort of intakers of Twitter, of cable news, et cetera, have on a regular basis? It's not a matter of constantly, it's called journalism ethics. And you're a, supposed to be a, this passion may be a bad word because again, there's certain sympathies, but you're supposed to be fair and provide facts. You obviously, you, you, there's certain stories you, you have sympathy for, but for the most part, you're supposed to be fair and non-judgmental. And when people complain about what I write, my immediate response is, what's inaccurate? They never respond or they just say, well, it's always anti this or anti this. And you know, I get all the, all you do is write anti-Trump stories. And then I send them the story that says, President Trump announced that there's gonna be funding for the portal bridge in New Jersey after meeting with Governor Murphy. And then I send the story that says, President Trump announced there were gonna be money to clean up these sites, these super fun sites in New Jersey. And then I don't get a response. When I got laid off, I got hundreds of messages on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, texting, phone calls. It's just, it was, it was overwhelming. 
And I still cannot get my arm around, my head around all the, everything that people said, all the nice things people said to me. Yeah. But one of the people who wrote back to me and said, this is a real tragedy. You're always a real fair and uh, fair reporter. Was somebody from the from Trump press office. I don't know how many reporters get that. I can say that a badge of honor. And I told them that at the end, that, that, I, that they felt in an administration that we know was not, did not like the press a lot and spar with them all the time and invented fake news, that they felt that I was a fair reporter. And I told them, I said, that means a lot to me. That, that means I'm doing my job. It is interesting. I feel like uh, too many journalists think praise is the badge of honor. And the real badge of honor is someone saying, it's not I loved what you wrote or I hated that way you wrote, but that you got it right. And you were accurate and fair. Yes, exactly. I agree with you on that. And that's what, that's what every, if you look at the, all the LinkedIn comments and look at all the Twitter comments. Also, by the way, I picked up a thousand Twitter followers in the last week. There you go. <laughs> um, so generally, I have sports writers on this podcast more than any other genre. And I always ask, uh, what's the maddest a athlete, coach, manager, GM has been at you in your career? In your long career covering politics, what's the best confrontation you've had? First of all, remember, remember I know I'm an award-winning sports writer. My coverage of the 2019 World Series won me a Society of Professional Journalists Award. So I'm an award-winning sports writer. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> but, but besides that, I really haven't had those type of co confrontations because that's not the type of reporter I am. I'm not sticking a smartphone in somebody's face to get them to say something stupid. Yeah. And there are people who, who expressed to me in person uh, what, that they don't like what I wrote. Uh, and they still come back and talk to me afterwards. There, there are very few people that refused to talk to me. There was one person who, when I came down to Washington the first time, one of the congressmen I covered, I'm, I'm not going to name him, but he was retiring and I was doing an exit interview. And he canceled the exit interview on me because the week before I wrote a story about there was a civil rights case before the U.S. Supreme Court. And there were two lawmakers that filed a friend of the court brief urging the Supreme Court to rule against civil rights case. One was Jesse Helms and the other one was my congressman, the one I covered. And I wrote that story. That's a really good story. And after that, he canceled the interview. So I wrote it without him. I once told a congressperson, I don't need you to write the bad stuff. I can always find people to criticize you. I need you to write the good stuff. I need to know what you're up to. You know, you have to tell me what, what things you're working on. I can't track everything. I've, I covered 14 members of Congress. I did to in New Jersey. And I can't track everything. Plus, I'm covering the federal agencies. Plus, I'm covering the White House. Plus, I'm covering the Jersey case for the U.S. Supreme Court. Plus, we're doing investigations. Plus, you got to tweet and you got to Facebook and social media. And you got to track social media now because right. you got to, because a lot of stuff is broken there. I don't break stuff on social media, but if Cory Booker text, trace, uh, tweets something and it goes viral, I got to write that story right. and what it's about. So, I don't have time for everything. So, you got to tell me what, what you're doing. And a lot of times they're good stories. And they say, oh, well, I, thanks for telling me. Or one of the congressmen I still remember this recently. You know, Jeff Van Drew from, from Jersey. And Van Drew was a Democrat and became a Republican. And we wrote a lot of stories on the switch and also how he now was voting against bills that he once co-sponsored. Because now he's a Republican. And he was one of the, the only ones from Jersey that signed the brief to the U.S. Supreme Court asking him to overturn the 2020 election. And the only one from New Jersey that voted to overturn the election results when they were certifying the results. At the same time, he introduces a bill that says, that it's really upsetting that you, the hospital should not ban you from being able to see a loved one when they're dying because all these people died alone at hospitals because of COVID. And he wanted a bill to prevent that from happening. And I thought it was a great story. 
Right. And I talked to him. I said, I need people who are hurt, who couldn't see their loved ones. And he put me in touch with them. And he got you know, a big story, page one. And I'm sure he liked that one. But, you know, he didn't like some of the other stuff. But again, you're, giving, you're, giving, you're being fair to, to all the lawmakers. Right. Let me ask you a final question. You're 69 years old. You've been doing this a very long time. You just lost your job. What do you do now? Well, my master plan was to stay till the end of 2024 and cover Cory Booker's presidential reelection campaign. Those <laughs> plans got, got derailed in 2020 because Cory Booker didn't win. He didn't even get the nomination. Right. And then I'm figuring, well, I got cheated out of the 2021 inauguration because we had to quarantine. So I'm owed an inauguration. Well, I like this. This is really the department circumstances of American government and, and democracy. And as an American citizen, it's really special to be there. And as a journalist, I can go where nobody else can. So I figured, okay, it's 2025. So now if I wait only one more year, I can have 50 years in journalism. So I should wait till 2026. The pro- and plus, I was elected to the Standing Committee of Correspondence. I think I mentioned that uh, earlier. And that term ends at the end of 2024. And I want to serve that term out. So I want, so I want to stay in journal. I'm not ready to retire yet. So luckily, I'm getting, I'm getting some nibbles and people are looking at me. The Washington Post did this really wonderful story on my layoff right. about me. 13 of the 14 members of the congressional delegation wrote a letter of protest. Uh, the governor comp- tweeted out a complaint. That never happens. People lose their jobs all the time in Washington, and it's never happened before. So I'm hoping that somebody else will read it and say, yes, we need a, a good, fair, accurate, and experienced journalist to work in Washington, and I get a job. Well, listen, I appreciate you doing this. Your career is absolutely amazing. I still have hope for journalism, and it sounds like you do too, despite it all. And I, um, so I appreciate you doing this. I really do. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. I want to thank today's guest, Jonathan Salant, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow Jonathan on Twitter at JD Salant. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I'd be really appreciative. Music is by the great MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.